Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the CX Goalkeeper podcast. Your host, Gregorio Leoni, will have smart discussion with experts, thought leaders, and friends on customer experience, transformation, innovation, and leadership. I hope you will enjoy the next episode. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight it's really, really a big, big pleasure from my side. I have Michael Bartlett with me. Hi, Michael. How are you? Hello, Greg. I'm doing very good. How are you doing today? Very well. And I am really pleased that you accepted my invite that I have you on the CX Goalkeeper podcast. For me, you are the architect of my, but not only mine, all CCXP exam preparation because your simulator is outstanding. And also I want to say thank you publicly and officially to you for helping me preparing this exam. Thank you very much, Michael. You're very welcome. It's also great because I'm, I'm so happy to be on your podcast because you use um, football as an analogy for CX. And I used to do that many years ago, not with CX, but with film directing. And we would always talk about our dream 11. <laughs> so I've done the similar things to you before. Oh, that's, uh, that's, that's very nice. And it's also a big pleasure. I start every podcast in the same way. And I ask my guest to introduce himself. Michael, could you please introduce yourself? Um, I'm a generalist, I guess is probably the right term to use now. I'd never heard that term before until I went for a job interview in 20, when was it, 2017? And the guy, I told the guy what I did. I always felt embarrassed when I was trying to explain my career because it kind of zigzags quite a lot. And he said, oh, yes, you're a generalist. So I was like, okay, I guess I'm a generalist then. I live in southwest Missouri. Um, I do a lot of uh, dog rescue. I'm very passionate about uh, helping uh, shelter animals and rescues and supporting foster networks. And I do it all through uh, my work in CX. I have a day job. Um, it's actually probably the best day job in the world. It's a, I work for a company called J-Mark, who are based here in Springfield, Missouri. Um, I had a local businessman approach me recently and he said, give me a number. What would it take to get you to leave J-Mark? And I said, honestly, you'd have to pay my mortgage off twice because that's how much I love working at J-Mark. So even though I do all of my CCXP uh, work on the side and I do, you know, CX consulting here and there, not very much of it, to be honest. It's mainly CCXP work I do. Um, I, I just, my day job is so enriching that I just love it. And I hope, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard of people talk about getting the Sunday night blues and they know they have to go into work on Monday and I don't get those. I actually look forward to Mondays now as well. So I work as, my job title is um, Director of uh, Experience Innovation and I do a little bit of AI, a little bit of CX and generally just try to protect the company and make sure that the company is moving in the right direction and advise the CEO and then work with other members of the staff just to make sure that we're doing things the right way and our customers are being taken care of. So I have quite a meandering career, a little bit of film directing in there for a little bit, a um, little bit of consulting with Accenture. So yeah, I think a generalist is probably the best summary. <laughs> I am also former Accenture and therefore I need to say best people and therefore <laughs> the best people come to, to this podcast. Uh, jo joke by side, I think you are saying that you are a generalist, but you are very well known in the customer experience field, in the customer experience community for all the work that you are doing. And it's, 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 it's really great to, to have you here. And I, I really love uh, also our how you are helping others 
And in this case, it's not only human beings or human beings in a broader sense, because you are also uh, helping with your uh, support to the dog rescue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would like to understand a bit which values drives you in life. So if you go to my LinkedIn profile, I've actually got a copy of it here so I can read them out to everybody. I don't know what possessed me to do this, but I know that businesses have core values and I figured it would make sense if I listed my core values out on my LinkedIn profile page. So I'll go through them and I'll explain where they come from. Most of them come from my parents, to be fair. Um, So let's start with generosity. That actually comes from my dad. My dad was always very generous. He always tried to look after other members of the family. He was like basically the best dad I could have ever had, really, because he was responsible. He took care of everything. And he made us feel that there was never anything to worry about as kids. He had everything taken care of. And he was just immensely generous. And I love that about him. And I didn't copy that. I don't know if it just flowed through naturally into me, but that's how I've always been. You know, I always see people that maybe are in weaker positions than me, that weren't as lucky as me. And I try to help them out however I can. You know, it sometimes extends into the CCXP where I've had candidates from, you know, sort of low-income backgrounds and they can't really afford any materials. And so I try my best to work with those guys as well. I had someone that got hold of a copy of my book illegally and they told me, and I said, look, don't worry about it. Just if you make a donation to a dog shelter after you pass the exam, that's fine with me. And I assume they did. I mean, most people I've worked with seem to be pretty good. So generosity is very important. Knowledge is one of my biggest ones, and that's because um, I just can't stop learning. I don't know why I'm obsessed with it. And every time I come across a new field that might have some very revealing information in that could make big differences, I start I run headfirst into it and I just do everything I can. So right now I'm looking at the VUCA field and the anti-fragile field, and I'm just reading and reading as much as I can. What frustrates me when I try to learn new things is, and I ran into this with culture as well, is there's a number of books by culture experts And each of these books will have a framework in it. Normally, it's a nice little acronym that you can remember the framework, but they're all different. I'm like, well, hang on a minute. What is the fundamental truth behind creating a good culture? If there is one, I don't think any of you have found it yet because you all disagree with each other with your frameworks. So I try to look for commonalities, underlying patterns, and that's a lot of what drives the work I do and actually what drove this book that I'm about to release because of the nature of looking for patterns. So that's kind of one of the things I do with my with my books is I, I extract as much knowledge and patterns from them as I can and I document them. And then I come back to them later on if I might need them in any way, whether it's to help someone with a specific problem or for a new book, for example. And then the other two are positivity and fun. So I just try to stay as positive as I can. I'm very much a you know glass half full person. And I also believe it's very important not to take yourself too seriously to have fun in life because no matter how good you are at something, Whatever the specialty of your field, there's always someone who's going to be a little bit better than you out there. So try not to get, you know, an ego and just remember that we're all in this together and that, you know, you can learn as much from other people as they can learn from you. So it's best to take a collaborative, fun approach to life. So it's kind of my attitude, really. Uh, it's 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 really nice and are really important values perhaps one question how many books do you read on a yearly basis because i'm following you on linkedin and uh, often (laughs) you are reviewing books on one side publishing them on linkedin but also you have a great youtube channel where you are summarizing books are you eating the books or are you speed reading them (laughs) 
So I try not to speed read. Um, I do sometimes, but so what I've done is I've made a rule that on my YouTube channel, if I'm going to review a book, then I have to have read every word in that book. But then there are some books, uh, like this, there's, so I'm on the VUCA stuff, I'm reading another one right now, and it's got a lot of stuff very familiar to it. So now I'm skimming, and I'm skimming, and I'm looking for areas that could be very interesting. There was a really fascinating book that came out a few years ago called Human Sigma, and instead of reading that one, I scanned it because a lot of the stuff was familiar. And then what happened is I ran into a section on the concept of fairness, and that was new. And then as soon as I hit that section, then I went through it very, very slowly, and actually there was lots of really great information in it. And then after that, I started speeding up again because it was familiar territory. So I don't really need to, I don't want to keep rereading the same things that I've seen before. So let's say you buy a book on CX and it talks about behavioral science. And then there's a whole chapter on system one and system two. I don't need to read system one and system two again. I've seen it in so many books. Um, but generally, I used to read a lot. I don't know what the number was, 40, 50, maybe a year. But last year, not very many at all, maybe 15, 20. Um, and the reason is because I started working at a startup and was in charge of doing all their UX and CX work for them. My employer invested in them, just assigned me to the startup full time. And that's all I've been doing since 2001 is working on this startup. So I've dramatically slowed down now. And I always tell my wife, you always know when I've got a bit of free time, because I'll speed up the reading again. And suddenly the book reviews will start appearing on the uh, the YouTube channel again. So unfortunately, not as many as I, I would have liked. I wish there was a way that someone would just pay me and all I could do is read books every day. That would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But I think that now it's time to come the, the big topic that we would like to discuss. And I really say it from my art, ladies and gentlemen, don't speed read the book of Michael because I'm 100% sure that it will be full of insight. I had the great honor to have a short preview on that. And now we are having this discussion. But as soon as you can buy the book, please post the podcast. Go to Amazon or wherever you, can, you want to buy books and buy Michael's book because it's really a great one. And the name is The Dark Side of Customer Experience, but I don't want to start speaking about it if I have Michael here. And therefore, my question is, why did you decide to, did you decide to write a book? So I guess it came, the inspiration was from another book I read called Predictable Success. It's my favorite ever business book. What I liked about predictable success is the author presents some scenarios at the beginning of the book. And he said, because he's been a consultant for many, many years, and he said, I, I'd go to a business, and one of my long-term clients would come to me, and they'd be waving their hands in the air, and they're like, nothing's working, everything's going wrong. And then just a litany of all the things, you know, just they're just throwing at him. And as you're reading the book, it becomes overwhelming. You're like, oh, wow, yeah how would I even go about trying to know where to start with something like that? Well, he presents those three stories. Then he presents the framework in the book. And then at the end of it, he says, now let's go back to those stories and see if they make a little bit more sense to you. And immediately you see patterns and you're like, oh, okay, this is happening. This is happening. Therefore, this is what we need to do. It was a wonderful way of problem solving. And it relates directly to a concept in chess, uh, which is called pre-ohms. And pre-ohms in chess, and I mean, I have so many books I could talk you through on chess. Um, but basically what it is, is it takes a pattern, a familiar pattern that you can recognize in a position. And if that pattern appears 
then you can take an associated maneuver to exploit the situation and give your give your game an advantage. And I thought, wow, you could combine those two ideas and you could literally create a bunch of pre-owns for customer experience because you see them every day and everybody knows what they are. Um, some people even have the same names for them as well. So why not just catalog them? Because then like, if you think about someone who's sick and they don't know what's wrong with them, it's horrible. Once they get the diagnosis and they know the name of the enemy – it makes it makes it easier because then you know this is what I'm dealing with. Now I know the kind of steps. There's a body of knowledge about what things I can do. There's experts that are aligned to solving this specific problem. So it's all about trying to catalog and name the problem. And then once you can do that, uh, it should make hopefully solving the problem a lot easier, which makes obviously customers' lives better, which is the most important thing. It 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 totally makes sense, and I think, and I'm a bit square, quite scared to speak about with you because I'm sure you are already checking my behavior, what I'm saying, what I'm not saying, how I'm moving my eyes, and so on. I'm quite quite scared, but <laughs> let's let's continue the discussion. Um, I think it's it's really interesting, and and before we deep dive and in, in these different patterns and what we could how we could. Uh, work against them or create experiences then that fit for for our customer you are also uh, introducing one interesting concept it's about the iceberg model could you please elaborate a bit on that well the problem with systems uh, in business is they're very complex and there's lots of moving and interacting parts and so you can't just sort of look at something like i'll give you a great example i worked in a company once where um We had to do data imports. So what we would do is we would take a client. Well, actually, we would work with an Indian company, and the Indian company would bring the client offline at nighttime. We would then run through our import, and then the Indian company would bring it back online. But the process was a real mess. The process was like using, instead of identifying the customers by their name, you'd use a three-digit code. And it would sometimes be something like ABX. And maybe there was a client called ABY. And you can see how that could get very dangerous very quickly, uh, especially when human beings find it difficult to discern distinctions in very similar um, letters and patterns. So um, what happened was one person actually made a mistake and they they pulled client A's database down offline. And then they, when they were finished with the work, they overwrote their production database with client B's database. And, and everybody was freaking out. And, of course, it turns out, luckily, that the, the Indian company had made a backup. But the fact that event happened was shocking. And people just said, oh, well, you made a mistake. And then people just carried on as if nothing had happened. And this is where the iceberg, iceberg model is useful because it says, what could have caused an event? And could that event be part of a larger pattern? Well, if they looked into it, what they would have seen is that I had at least two or three. I was terrible with this, actually. I had two or three incidents where I'd got the, the names wrong and I'd put the wrong characters in. And luckily, we had multiple people double-checking it. But once we had someone check it three times and there's still errors in there. And so it, what it did is it illuminated a fundamental pattern that was wrong in the business where you have to just go deeper to try and understand what, what was causing that. And underlying the pattern is some kind of a structure in the business and underlying that structure is a mindset. And what happened was we'd been taken over by some investment companies. They just wanted to grow, 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 sell, sell, sell. So there wasn't any interest or enthusiasm put into trying to look at where the cracks might be and understand, oh, we've we start scaling quickly. Those cracks could get bigger and bigger and bigger and we could pass ourselves into a bad situation. 
I spotted it, not knowing anything about the iceberg model, and they wouldn't let me uh, actually fix it. So I had to use my own weekends, and I wrote a tool. So the tool would present the name of the client in plain English, and then you would select that because that's what the human deals with better. And then in the background, it would write the document to the Indian company and put in all of those little fiddly codes, and they would be correct. That way, there was no possibility of anything going wrong. But if somebody had uh, actually known about the iceberg model and, and been a systems thinker at the organization, they would have been able to discover those underlying problems that could come to the surface and you know, sink you, literally, as icebergs do. Um, and so that's why it's an important model. And I've talked about it in the book. Talks about how I've used it to identify typical root causes for patterns. But the problem is, every business is unique. So whilst I can tell you, if you see this particular CX pattern, this is the most likely reason for it, it doesn't mean it, it always will be. So you should use the iceberg model yourself to investigate your own business, investigate your own customer experience patterns, and then hopefully pull out what those root causes are, pull out the structures, pull out the mindsets that are driving them, and then make some changes to try and fix that. So that's where that model is very useful. Thank you very much. And, and it totally makes sense. It's something that, that we can leverage in our um, daily jobs to, to understand better issues. And we understand now from you that uh, why you wrote the book. And my next question would be, what's in for, for the readers? If uh, readers read your book, what are they going to learn? So the book was supposed to originally just be a catalog of patterns, but I wanted to give people an appreciation for why bad customer experiences are bad customer experiences. In the CX world, there's a lot of emphasis on the customer in the world customer experience, but less so on experience, the actual psychology of the experience. So what I've done is with the book, I've introduced this concept of pre-ohms. I've talked about chess a little bit. I know not everybody's going to understand chess, so I've tried to keep it fairly high level. And then I've got, gone into a deep dive on what makes a bad experience. And I show from a from an evolutionary psychology perspective, all of the deep drives that are within human beings and why we have them. Then I bring that up a level of abstraction and say a higher level, you can boil it down to one of two things, which is either goal friction, where something gets in the way of you trying to get your job done, or social friction, where maybe the experience is wonderfully efficient, but people were rude to you, people talk down to you, that kind of thing. And normally a bad customer experience has one of those two elements, if not both. So I wanted to give everybody the psych psychological grounding first, and then after that, then I catalogued the experiences. But rather than just being a big list of of customer experience pre-owns, occasionally we'll take a diversion. So for example, in the topic where I talk about culture and how culture can be the underlying problem with some patterns, it's not enough just to say that. I then wanted to go and talk about culture for the reasons I mentioned earlier to you, which is that, okay, so there's one of about maybe eight books they can pick up, but gonna, depending on which one they pick up, they're going to get a different framework. So how do I want to make, I want to make sure everyone is, is approaching this consistently so the book then goes and talks about certain subjects from a fundamental level. What, why is culture even a thing? Where does it come from? 
from from a scientific perspective how do, how do we get it and how do we use it and once i cover that i think it gives you enough grounding that you could then go and get one of those other individual books and use those frameworks but at least it lets you know where culture comes from and i have these little diversions occasionally just to mix it up just to make it a little bit more interesting for the reader so it takes them on a journey sometimes i'll have an interview with uh, a cx practitioner or a business leader who specialized in that particular area and made things work so you get to see not just the theory but you actually get to see some people that have been there and done it as well and and it totally makes sense because at the end experiences are human it's something that we are doing but really to understand these patterns or prayum you you explained to us what they are perhaps can you make an example what is what is a pattern and how we should handle this pattern and to make that a bit more understand understandable also for for the audience which one do you prefer the most <laughs> so there is a classic pattern called uh the endless wait and it's a pattern that appears a lot where um basically the customer so what happens is before you engage in an experience you always do some level of mental accounting like okay how much time is this going to take me even if you have no idea like you've never been to this business before on some level you've still made a prediction because that's what our human brains do is they try to predict everything to optimize the energy that we use so you're in a business let's say you're in the DMV for example and um if actually if people not in America that's the place where you get your driver's license and um so you get in so you get there and the DMV's got a bad reputation anyway so most people are probably like oh, it's probably going to take a long time at like 30 40 minutes and then you get in line and then something happens where it just goes too slow and then you start to get irritated and angry and it's because you the prediction is incorrect what you're feeling that frustration and anger is one of your drives which is your drive to explore meaningful goals is being suppressed down and you because you're being forced to stay in a stagnant position and it's an evolutionary drive but it doesn't matter there's nothing you can do about it when when you're in that line you can either get out of line or you can stay there and of course that's where the sunk cost fallacy comes from which makes people even more angry now the causes of it there's 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 a number of different causes but with um with the endless wait the way to solve it There's only really two ways to solve it. You can solve it objectively in the real world or you can solve it subjectively in the customer's head because it's customer experience. So there are tricks you can do. So the first thing is easy. So you you work on your operations to make sure that um you know when the when the peak times are and then you have extra staff on hand maybe if there's exceptions where some where people could take longer like you've got something ready for them i see this a lot when people go into stores and just you want to set an account up with us and then everyone has to stand behind that person while they take 10 minutes to set something up if you have a separate booth you redirect them to that could make life a lot a little bit easier so you can solve it operationally The other way you can solve it is psychologically. So what you could do is you could put a timer on the wall and it says expected wait time. And immediately that helps people form the right expectation so they shouldn't be angry even if it's a big number. In fact if the number's a little higher than what it actually takes that might not be such a bad idea too depending on the frequency of visits because remember people will then learn that and then associate that next time. Uh, other things you can do is you can maybe if there's different areas they walk through you can color code them. So like I'm in the purple zone now and if I can make it to the yellow zone next I'm a bit closer. So there's there's traditionally you can always solve these patterns in two ways objectively and then subjectively. And then in terms of like what causes them, 
normally it's the customer experience design. Like they've either not designed it properly or they've not designed it with customers or at least tested it with customers in the real world. Normally these things are all done before they even open the doors. Everyone's come up with this great design, open the doors, and then reality happens and then you see what, what goes on and you're like, oh, this didn't really work out the way I thought it would. So that's that's kind of one of the, the neat tricks about um, the pre-owns as well as I not only offer what the most likely causes are, but I'm like, here are some of the things that you can do to fix them as well. And the endless weight's a really good example because you encounter that everywhere and it can be so easily fixed just with psychological means as well. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the word of mouth. Subscribe it, share it. Until the next episode, please don't forget, we are not in a B2B or B2C business, we are in a human-to-human environment. Thank you.